So, Mark. Yeah? One of the common themes of American entertainment is that it's impossible to understand rich people because they are chaotic weirdos totally divorced from normal life. I mean, one of my favorite images in movies is the old widow in a Looney Tunes cartoon just throwing wads of cash into the fire to keep herself warm. Right, it's like Scrooge McDuck. At some point you have so much money, I guess you must be swimming in it? I still love the first time someone pointed out to me that gold is very solid and he would not be able to swim in it. My world was shaken. When they started the new DuckTales uh, on Disney Channel or Disney XD or whatever it is. The one with Danny Pudi that gave us that great Larry <laughs> King interview. Larry, I'm on DuckTales. Uh, a luxury you can't live without. A luxury I can't live without. Coffee. I really like good coffee. It's not coffee. a luxury you can get it anywhere. Ah, I guess, yeah, I like good coffee. What's more? I love coffee, too. I like nice socks. Socks? Your your socks, would you put in your shoes? Yeah, I really love them. I like kind of like, you know, cozy feet. You're attracted to your socks. I'm attracted to really nice running socks. Like, I'm always looking for good running you know, socks. Not, that's not a luxury, though. Coffee and socks are not a luxury. All right, give me a luxury. Which, what luxury should I have? Private plane. Larry, I'm on DuckTales. At, like, Comic-Con or wherever it was that they were promoting it, they had a, like, kiddie pool full of plastic gold coins. And, like, other people could do it and, like, take photos and stuff like that. But I remember this video on YouTube of the cast diving into this pool. And they were all like, no, this is just bruising us. <laughs> yeah, it is painful to jump onto a bunch of solid gold, no matter the size. But... That's the thing. Rich people, you just can't understand it. Like, Scrooge McDuck is probably just trying to feel something. Anything. Oh my god. I feel like we went to Georgetown. We have met some obscenely wealthy people. I feel like I haven't witnessed anything to the level of movies. The son of the CFO of Sbarro lived in my freshman dorm and bought Facebook ads for a freshman student government campaign. Oh my god. Do you think he knows Pizzerina Sbarro? <laughs> I mean, I assume so. By the way, he lost. Good. I would not vote for him. Uh, a guy on my floor was running, and I was a part of his campaign, which involved caroling around the building, singing songs that we had rewritten to be about him. I can easily see Georgetown students buying Gussa President ads on Facebook, but not for Hall Council or whatever the role he was going for was. Anyway, the reason I brought up the inscrutability of rich people is because I was wondering, like, what is your favorite crazy rich person move in a movie? So there's a movie that is based off of a TV show that is just about a rich woman doing whatever the f*** she wants because she is rich called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries which is about a flapper in 1920s Melbourne deciding to solve crimes because she's rich. Naturally. And in the movie, somehow they end up, she's like rescuing a political prisoner in the British Mandate of Palestine. And that's how what? the movie opens. And she's like, she gets involved in the politics of the British Mandate, like building a railroad, and then ends up discovering the tomb of Alexander the Great or something. Excellent. Wait, I assume this was like just murder mystery stuff, but there's like Indiana Jones crap wrapped in there too? Only in the movie. The TV show okay. is very much just like cocaine smuggling and other 1920s things where people die. I think there's like a dead body that's 
actually real in a carnival horror show. Yikes. Which I think is based off a real thing that happened. Yeah, that feels like some P.T. Barnum business. You know, the inspirational hero of the greatest showman who, in real life, sewed the top half of a monkey to the bottom half of a fish and called it a mermaid. Also, I'm pretty sure he was hugely racist. Oh, yeah, totally. But it was actually a cool opening where they were, like, going through this horror show and a guy's like, this is fake. And he, like, touches it and the leg falls off and there's, like, human Ah! bone inside. Honestly, very fun. Great show. Would recommend. The movie was absolutely wild. It was, like, both a just long episode episode as tv movies usually are but also suddenly there's magic in the world so my thought is also something that was adapted when it came to film uh it was adapted from a stage musical which is the opposite of the direction we usually go and the stage musical was adapted from a newspaper comic strip because i am thinking of annie ah yes of course the little Whose orphan. plot centers around a rich old man who for two weeks every year at Christmas has an orphan live with him, but then he proceeds to not interact with them at all and also thinks only boys can be orphans. Wait, what? In the film Annie, Daddy Warbucks is confused that a girl orphan has arrived at his home for his annual two-week orphan adoption because he says, you're a girl, orphans are boys. That happens. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. I assure you, this is a part of the story. And this is the, like, classic Annie. Yeah, this is not the, like, Jamie Foxx cool Annie. Okay, that's crazy. I have not seen the Jamie Foxx cool Annie. Me neither. Lil Orphan Annie comics are so freaky. I don't like looking at them. We've talked about them on the show before because I've told my favorite fact about Little Orphan Annie, which is that the cartoonist was, like, a hardcore 1920s conservative who was so angry at the New Deal he killed off Daddy Warbucks. I don't like that she doesn't have pupils. I don't know what it is about, like, only white eyes really kind of weirds me out. Well, there's something like the the scary child from a horror movie to it. There is. I guess... I feel like children weren't scary back in the 20s. No, children were ignored. Yeah. <laughs> like my friend watching Mad Men texted me, did anyone like their children before the 1980s? No, you had your children to prove that you were an adult. What a terrible way of viewing childs. <laughs> childs. Children, as you might say. There you say. go. It's been a long time since you've seen one. We've been inside for a very long time. Every time I go for a walk and there's a baby in a stroller, I have to remind myself that that is still a human. (laughs) And not just those people who push their dog around in a stroller. I love seeing a dog in a stroller, honestly. Especially, I stopped judging after I talked to one woman whose pug was in a stroller, and she's like, yeah, he's 15, deaf, and blind, but I take him (laughs) around just so he can smell things. (laughs) (laughs) There's something very pathetic about that. Yeah, especially because it's a pug. But it's like the dog needs mental stimulation, but you can't bring a 15-year-old dog that's deaf and blind on a walk. (laughs) Icon, that pug. That should be the next Pixar short film. (laughs) By the way, I know we talked about Soul a little bit on our uh, Congo episode. Did you watch the short that was supposed to be attached to it in theatrical release? Was it Burrow? Yeah. I... Love Burrow. I've watched it twice. so cute. It's so good. We did a movie night and we were watching Tangled. And then after we finished that, I was like, oh, we have to watch Burrow. And all of them were just like blown away. It's one of my favorite Pixar shorts. It is the bomb. It's fun because it's just like people be nice to each other. Yeah. And realize your dreams of your underground disco. Slash bathroom. 
Yeah. Oh my god. What a great short. You know what else is great? The movie we're going to discuss today. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast where we examine one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if it seems like the main plot at the beginning and then disappears until the last scene. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the oldest surviving film by a black director, 1920s Within Our Gates, written, directed, and produced by Oscar Micheaux. I didn't really know what to expect with this movie. I, like, read the brief plot summary on Wikipedia. It was very interesting. I think it is very interesting, and there's a lot to talk about. I don't know that I think it's good. I thought it was good because I enjoyed seeing a movie that was like playing around with time and jumping back and forth and stuff. And I haven't seen a lot of early movies doing things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting use of flashbacks in particular. And also to cutting back and forth between events happening at the same time. It was a very dynamic movie. This is one of the earliest movies I've seen. So I think that I just wasn't expecting as much dynamic like nature of it i would love to have seen it with the original intertitles yeah i think you can tell that something is lost so this movie was itself thought to be a lost film a lot of early movies we no longer have because they just weren't thought of as great art and weren't preserved or a lot of them caught fire because film was very flammable yeah and this movie was thought to be lost until the 1970s when a copy of it was discovered in spain that was eventually shared with the Library of Congress, who made a print of it, but the intertitles were in Spanish, and so they had to translate them back into English using some of Oscar Micheaux's novels to get the language to be similar to his kind of writing. But I think there's a real sense watching it that we're not quite getting what was originally there. And I think that the lost scenes probably would have helped make some things make more sense. Because there were a few jumps that I didn't really get. I think I was trying to watch this with a very generous mind. And that's why I may have been like willing to jump in and be like, I think it's great. Part of that is because I understand that we are not watching a finished product in a way. Sure, that is definitely true. Like I said, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And Oscar Micheaux is an interesting character. And we should talk a little bit about his life. But... This feels to me like two or maybe three movies in one. And that's hard when you have a two or a three hour movie. When you've got 80 minutes, that's too much movie for one movie. And I think that all of the pieces of it suffer for that. I think there are several parts that could have been cut to flush out more interesting ideas. I'm not even talking about cutting. I think like at various points, he changed his mind about the movie he wanted to be doing. Yes. And that... Like, the story of Sylvia in the first half dealing with education and old Ned the Preacher, I think there's a lot of really fascinating stuff to say there. There's also a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the very extended flashback. I mean, it's almost half the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Conrad. <laughs> Until the very end of that flashback, the two halves aren't that connected, except that Dr. Vivian is being told this is Sylvia's backstory. But Sylvia's not the one telling it, and she's not really present in it until the very end. And so while there's a lot of really compelling stuff happening there, visually and in terms of its ideas, it feels quite disconnected. And when Dr. Vivian goes to comfort her at the end of the movie, it feels a little bit like a solution in search of a problem because she has not been engaging with that at all, really, in the movie. That is very fair. I think I would 
love to see more of his movies because I think he has a lot of really interesting ideas. And I do think that a movie about Sylvia going north to get money for the school, meeting someone, coming back south, experiencing trouble, and then going back north to be with the man that she fell in love with is a good movie. And then I think the story of her parents is a good movie. But you are right that they are disjointed and not connected enough. And then also... (laughs) Dr. Vivian's, like, examples of how great America is are, like, two things that I would strongly disagree as the right course of action. Well, when Dr. Vivian is making the argument to Sylvia, he's not saying these are why America is great, although it's kind of implied. His real point is these are how black people are part of the great things the United States has done. So, like, people think of, like, Roosevelt and the Rough Riders as a great thing. Well, black people were there. People think... American victory in World War One is a good thing. Well, black people were there. And so what he is doing is placing black people throughout this history of the United States. Ultimately, with that conclusion, we were never immigrants. It's making an argument that they fundamentally belong in the United States and are not outcasts. You know, old Ned makes the comment at one point about like, oh, yeah, I know this is a white people's country. Dr. Vivian is saying, no, look at us. We're there all the time. Right. With a subtle dig at other immigrants thrown in. I think this was the same year as the China Exclusion Act. No, the Chinese Exclusion Act is 1880s. Really? Yeah, it's 84, I think. Was there something else with, like, quotas in the The National Origins Act is 1924. Okay. So the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 80s is just no Chinese people. Ones that are already in the U.S. can't become citizens. Right. 1924, there's this, like, post-World War One surge in isolationism where a lot of Americans are like, holy cow, World War One was a disaster. I guess we sort of won, but the U.S. didn't get anything out of it, and a lot of people died. And there's this surge of nativism. There, there's also a big increase in immigration after the war because now it's safe to go across the Atlantic Ocean because there aren't U-boats. <laughs> so then the Republican Congress passes this law called the National Origins Act, which caps the number of immigrants from each country to the United States for the first time in history. And they set it at, um, I think it's like 10, 10%. It's some, no, it's even lower than that. Um, it's a, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. It might be like 2% of the population of people from that country in the United States as of 1900. Wow. And the thing is, this is 1924. So they also have numbers from the 1910 census and the 1920 census. And so they very pointedly use an outdated census that has fewer people from other countries in it. So that's a part of the story. I mean, I think another part of this story too, one of the things that gets talked about a lot with this movie is its relationship to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which you have not seen, right? No, I have not. Okay. That's definitely there. I see some of those arguments. It's also really notable that Within Our Gates comes out in 1920 in the midst of this series of race riots in major cities of the United States, largely outside the South. And so, you know, this movie starts out with these intertitles about like, ah, yes, it's set in the North. I wrote it down. Where the prejudices and hatreds of the South do not exist, though this does not prevent the occasional lynching of a Negro. I took a picture of that because, boy, did I want to discuss it. So in 1919, there's an incredibly destructive race riot in Chicago, which is where Oscar Michaud's production company was based, which starts when a black kid is swimming in Lake Michigan and accidentally swims into the whites-only area of, like, the beach and waterfront. People start pelting him with rocks, and he drowns. This leads to escalating violence that ultimately culminates in white people marauding through black neighborhoods of Chicago, burning them to the ground. Similarly, there are race riots in Detroit, in Los Angeles, over these couple of years. I'm not saying, like, one follows another, but people are reading about these in 
it's part of this zeitgeist, and it culminates somewhat famously now in the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I think Birth of a Nation is kind of part of what Michaud is talking about, but he's making this movie in a city that has just experienced this racially motivated destruction outside the South. So do you think that inner title would have read as a joke to the audience at that time, like a black audience in these cities after witnessing all these race riots? I think it's possible. There is still a recognition that like, you know, in all this, like it's better to be in Chicago than in, you know, the Mississippi place where the Landry's are from. Right. But yeah, there would be a recognition that that occasional lynching can be quite destructive. Yeah, much more than just a lynching. Right. I was very thrown off by that title card because I feel like that's also a conversation that's happening now, too, about people recognizing the North is not as progressive or, like, tolerant as they want to picture themselves. And that is definitely something that's being discussed, I feel, more and yeah, more. I, I mean, as a U.S. history teacher, stuff I hit over and over again is, like, because I just, like, wrapped up talking about Reconstruction as we record this. Like, not every person in the North was an abolitionist. Not every abolitionist believed in racial equality. These things are much messier than we might like to congratulate ourselves into thinking. Yeah, there's a lot of very weird abolitionist views out there. Yeah, which is, like, really interesting. Like, reading about the different levels of abolitionism... I find very interesting that people that are just like believe in equality and others that are just like, they are absolutely disgusting humans and we want the system that is basically the same as slavery, but we don't want it to be called slavery anymore. I mean, that's mostly like post-war after slavery has been abolished. What's more interesting to me are the people who are abolitionists, but not because they believe in racial equality. So like there are people who believe that slavery its biggest problem is that it's bad for white people who say, like, slavery leads white people to sin because when you have absolute power over somebody, you're probably going to abuse it. And so that's bad. And so we need to end slavery so that white people will not be led to sin that way. And there are a lot of other people. This is especially the source of a lot of abolition sentiment in the Midwest, whose argument is basically we are concerned about the expansion of slavery because if slavery expands to the Louisiana Purchase then free labor won't be able to compete with enslaved labor and free white people will wind up in poverty. Yeah, almost all arguments come back to white people, unfortunately, <laughs> at the time. Even the most, I feel like even the best intentioned abolitionists still could not shake that worldview. I mean, th there are some who do and they either get painted as radicals or they were John Brown and they were genuinely radicals. Yeah, <laughs> there are people like that too. Did you watch that TV show, by the way? I haven't yet because I don't have Showtime, but I am really excited to do so. Why have Showtime? Oh, that might be why I didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot it was on that. I assume everything is HBO Max these days. Well, you can find a lot of things when you go to the Max. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So within our gates, like we said, it's the oldest surviving film directed by a black person. It's not the oldest one. The Lincoln Motion Picture Company in Los Angeles was a company run by black people, but we don't have their movies anymore. It wasn't even Oscar Michaud's first movie. Right. They actually intersect kind of interestingly. So Michaud, he's born in 1884. His parents had been enslaved. And then he, like, bounces around through a lot of jobs. He works in the stockyards in Chicago. He was a steel worker for a while. Spends a couple of years as a Pullman porter, 
which was a pretty prestigious job for black people at the time. He even became a homesteader in South Dakota. Like, he went out to South Dakota and then filed a land claim under the Homestead Act and worked as a rancher for a while. Oh my god. Yeah. So then he becomes a novelist, and he starts writing novels largely about black homesteaders. And the Lincoln Company reached out to him and were like, yo, we'd love to make this into a movie. But that fell apart because Michaud insisted on being involved, and they were like, no, we want to do it ourselves. So then when that fell apart, he went back to Chicago and founded his own production company to make that movie. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) It's cool. Now, on the other hand, so Within Our Gates then is his second movie. It comes out the next year. And I do think you can see that, like, this is a self-taught guy largely working outside of the film industry apparatus. He didn't have enough money for reshoots, which I think shows at times there are some, like, really clunky edits. Yeah. And he had to borrow most of the costumes and props for the movies. Like, this is very much cobbled together, but... It was, I mean, like, it's hard to call anything a hit, A, because we don't have real box office numbers, and B, because a movie buying about black people was not going to be, like, a runaway hit anywhere in the U.S. in 1920. But it is certainly a subject of discussion, and it does get screened in a bunch of places. And it helps to establish Michaud as this emerging voice in the film industry, and especially the black film industry. I looked up the Wikipedia page of the only two actors in the cast that had them, and both of the leading women, uh, Sylvia and Alma, are so interesting. Yeah. Evelyn Prier was like a major actress, but she died at 36. She's considered by some to be like the first black celebrity, where she was one of the earliest black actors to get recognition in the black community largely, but she also did cross into the white audiences. Right. She's in like some major movies featuring white people. She appeared on Broadway multiple times. And then the actress that played Alma went on to be the first black person in Illinois' House of Representatives. Oh, wow. (laughs) The Wikipedia page is like this black poet. I can't remember her name. I need to look it up. Uh, Floyd Clements, it doesn't even say, like, American politician and actress. It just says American politician in Illinois, notable for being the first black uh, woman. I think maybe not the first black person. But she was just in college and was just like, yeah, I'll be in this movie. And then she was in another one of his movies. But after that, 1927, she entered politics. Oh, wow. That's early. Yeah. Apparently, she was um, a Democrat back in the 20s which is very interesting for a black person. That is interesting. So she's very cool. Yeah. I mean, this movie is such an example of a period in the film industry before Hollywood had become as much of a central location. Because there's a window in the 19-teens where most major cities have their own film industry. And so you have a film industry based in Hollywood that's the largest one, but you have a pretty big one in New York, in Florida, in Chicago. And they all exist as these little hubs and these little worlds, and that's where Michaud is fitting into it. So he's using local people. But then, you know, Hollywood grew and the other shrank. Right. The growth of Hollywood is partially, this is a little bit earlier than this movie, but because Thomas Edison, who is a villain in just about every story that you tell about him, he tried to sue film companies on the grounds that basically he was the inventor of all video cameras and therefore like should get a cut of like all film productions i just love that this is a time where people are like you know what i'm just gonna go far away and you won't be able to find me out there (laughs) so that's what they did the studios just started moving to california because they were like it'll be too much of a hassle for him to deal with us out there 
apparently the original development in Hollywood was very religious and banned all alcohol and yeah. fun. Very conservative town. Very interesting story. Speaking of sort of conservative feelings at the time, this is also a period before the establishment of the production code. And so every community, every city, every state had their own censorship boards that would determine whether or not a film was allowed to be seen and would sometimes make cuts to different movies. And within our gates faced cuts like everywhere that they tried to show it. Chicago's board flat out turned it down at first. And they took two months of haggling to get it released. A bunch of people on the board in Chicago were arguing that they were concerned all of the scenes of racial violence might restart the violence from the 1919 riots. Michaud was eventually able to convince them it wouldn't. I found a quote later from an interview he gave in, I think, 1925, where he said, The only movie that has incited anybody to riot was and remains Birth of a Nation. Oh, great line. Yeah. Which... You know, this is not the first movie that could be cast as a response to Birth of a Nation. There are several by black filmmakers in the 19-teens. But that movie looms so large. And there are genuine parallels to be seen. But, I mean, it was the first real blockbuster. It was a massive, massive hit that was picketed and criticized by groups like the NAACP at the time of its release. But it was also a gigantic hit and directly led to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Ugh. (laughs) That's the thing that bothers me most about all discussion of old film being like it's just a product of the time it's like people were out there protesting this movie the day it came out like song of the south when people try and justify that it's like every major black organization in the country was protesting outside of the theaters when that was released people knew that this stuff was bad even back then I mean, which is the same thing linking back to slavery. Like, you have people yes. criticizing slavery as soon as it arrives in the Americas. I mean, you go back to De Las Casas. It's, it's like Europeans were in the New World for one day before someone showed up and was like, wow, all this genociding is bad. Ugh. So this will be an interesting movie for us to talk about because, like we've said, there is the first half, which is very much about this black woman, Sylvia, and her life, which has a lot of romance in it. And there's an extended flashback that we won't go into too much there, but we should maybe talk about it probably just when we get to it and say to heck with it. That I think is really significant for what the movie is trying to say, but is divorced from the romance that makes up the rest of its plot. Yeah, it's very great story, but it does not really tie in. It feels somewhat clumsily told. I'd be interested in seeing some of Michaud's later movies to see how he developed as a filmmaker as he... A, was able to secure more financing thanks to his success, and B, just had more experience behind the camera. Yeah, I mean, everything is a little little clunky, let's say. There is definitely some very obvious choices being made. We will be discussing Ephraim, I assume. Ephraim is a fascinating character, Yes, I know, it's very interesting. Because Ephraim is, in some ways, an indictment of the defenses of lynching. Yeah. Which is kind of a horrible thing to consider the defenses of lynching but that people argued oh you know what like sometimes you gotta take justice into your own hands and take care of the people who are tearing society apart and Ephraim is an example of a real thing that took place frequently a mob goes out looking for a particular black person and when they couldn't find them would just murder the first one they found and that's what happens to Ephraim yeah that was very distressing to watch yeah it's harrowing it was There are a number of cities like uh, Omaha and New Orleans, for example, censored a lot of the lynching sequence. I mean, that is very depressing that it had to happen, but I'm not surprised. 
I mean, this is definitely a pre-code movie, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. I think even more than Ephraim, the character that I find really interesting is old Ned, the preacher that the racist old lady Geraldine talks about. Because old Ned is the, the preacher in the community, and I think it's really interesting that Michaud uses him as a stand-in to sort of indict the black church. Which, given the history of the civil rights movement that we know of the 50 years after this movie, the black church becomes so important in the civil rights movement and pushing for political participation and an end to segregation and things like that. And at least to Michaud, he thinks of it as a distraction that leads people to complacency, that leads people to focus too much on like, ah, everything will be fine in heaven, don't worry about what's going on on earth. I think that it's not an indictment of all of the black church because you also have Reverend Jacobs. That's true. As, you know, the good preacher, but it is showing that there is definitely a strain within the black church that is actively harmful to the black community. Where old Ned is preaching, all of his preaching is like, based off of Sermon on the Mount stuff of the meek shall inherit the earth, rich people don't go to heaven, that kind of thing, where his argument becomes we shouldn't do anything, we shouldn't rock the boat, because the way it is now, all black people are the meek people, so we will all go straight to heaven, and all the white people will go to hell for being rich. And of course, then there's also the revelation that old Ned doesn't believe a lot of what he is saying, but is saying it because it makes it easier for him to live a nicer life because the white people don't get mad at him. Right. And honestly, it seems that he was kind of being paid off for saying this too. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to unpack in this movie, which is what makes it a a nice thing to talk about that, you know, as much as I think it doesn't always succeed as a film, it has a lot of really interesting ideas. I think it's definitely a movie that feels like someone that bit off more than they could chew, but I really enjoyed watching it for sure. And I want to figure out what his, like, I want to find the best of his later movies to watch. But we'll research that later. If you are interested in watching it, uh, humble listener, the Library of Congress has made its copy just available on YouTube. So we will have shared that link so you can find it on our social media. But definitely check it out. It's 80 minutes. Just like The Great Gatsby at some point later this year, it is in the public domain. Yeah. All right, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of a film into five points to guide discussion, keep us on track, especially for this movie, we're only going to be discussing the romance, I can feel it, we're not going to get sidetracked. We've already committed to going off track. I know. So, Will, why don't you take us to point number one? All right, this movie leads off by introducing a lot of characters. (laughs) Yeah. Like, very quickly, it also threw me off because something that I did that I thought was kind of cool was when it introduced a character, it would also credit the actor, which was interesting, but I thought it was like, this person is saying this quote, and I was like, this is, so I thought there were twice as many characters as the kind of large number they were introducing. It definitely took me a couple to figure out what was going on too, but I feel like I've seen this in another movie. It's possible I have, but I didn't remember it. It's been a long time since I last watched the silent movie. It was interesting in the like last 10 minutes when a new character is introduced, still seeing the actor's name, because there isn't really a sense in that way of trying to fully buy into the reality of the movie. You are aware that this is a movie, and the movie isn't really trying to convince you otherwise by hiding the fact that these are actors, even that far into the movie. Like, in the opening scene, you can watch it and kind of, it makes more sense, but when you get new characters in minute, you know, minute 55 of an 80-minute movie. Right, at the beginning, it feels like opening credits. Right. 
It was interesting. Anyway, through intertitles, we are told about a lot of different romantic feelings. We've got our lead, Sylvia, played by Evelyn Prier, and she has agreed by letter to marry Conrad. I am obsessed with Conrad's job because it makes no sense. I was going to say, no Conrad's sense. a bad dude. Conrad's awful, but Conrad's a mystery job because the first letter we get from Conrad is signed from Saskatchewan. And it says he's being transferred to Brazil. He's being transferred to Brazil. And then we get shots of him doing his job and he's kind of just like sitting there thinking. Well, isn't that also him? Like with the telescope and the hat, he looks like a jungle surveyor. Yeah. But he's in Saskatchewan, kind of in jungle clothes, and so the Brazil parts make sense, but I'm just, I love that it was so vague what Conrad was doing. I mean, I think he genuinely might be, like, an explorer, surveyor, like, part of a crew. Like, this is still the time period of, like, Lost City of Z and stuff like that, where they just send people on expeditions, like, please map this part of the world we have not mapped yet. What if Conrad is hunting for El Dorado? But little does he know, it's under Mount Rushmore. (laughs) We still gotta do that. I can't believe we haven't done that yet. I know. I do think we'd actually have more to talk about because they got divorced. It's a weirder romance. Yeah. Put it on the list. All right. (laughs) Maybe this summer. Maybe it'll be this year's 4th of July movie. Oh, perfect. I think that one might actually take place on the 4th of July. I think it does. But also, I could be wrong. Anyway. (laughs) So. Sylvia has agreed by letter to marry Conrad. But he's being transferred to Brazil. Meanwhile, the intertitles tell us that Alma, who is Sylvia's cousin or stepsister. Cousin. Alma is also in love with Conrad. Oh, yes. I'm trying to remember. So Alma is Sylvia's cousin and her stepbrother Larry is in love with Sylvia. A notorious underworld figure. Notorious underworld figure Larry is in love with Sylvia, but Alma and Sylvia love the same man. So he has to be a stepbrother. Because otherwise it's weird, I guess. So that's kind of just our point one is all of these intertitles quickly introducing a lot of relationships. Yeah, they're not really organically introduced, but I do feel like it really got it all out there and I understood and I was ready to go. I'm kind of interested to like read an Oscar B. show novel. Like, is the exposition like this? I hope so. Let's see if the DC library has any. It might just be online. It's from 1913. Fair. I haven't found some but very bad copies of old books online that are, like, impossible to read. Well, yeah, because people do a bad job yeah. transcribing them. Uh, all of these are about Oscar Michaud, the filmmaker. I will look through this later. Uh, I just found The Homesteader on Project Gutenberg. Is that? That's legit, right? Yeah. Okay. It's not just stealing books. No, it's not just stealing books. Okay. Good to know. Ooh, this book is divided into epics. They have some great titles. One of these chapters is titled, Vengeance is Mine, I Will Repay. That's hot. Yeah. All right, point two. Chicago the Boomerang. All right, point number two. So the notorious underworld figure, Larry, who by this point, his underworld activity, as far as we have seen, is confined to cheating at cards in a way that it feels like people should pick up on. It was so obvious. It was kind of cool to see. Again, you've talked about like seeing the filmmaking techniques of this early movie, but he's playing cards with people. And he's dealing, and anytime he deals a card, he would, like, hold it over just a mirror that he has sitting in front of him on the table and then deal it to someone. So he's clearly looking at every card. Didn't he have some, like, underworld name that wasn't just Larry? Like, yes, but I forget what it was. Like, or something? It was wild. Oh, I was hoping you would remember. I do not. 
It's the kind of thing, I feel like there's exactly the wrong amount of Larry. Like, we have some sense of, like, all of his underworld stuff, but it doesn't quite go anywhere. Give us more Larry. So, anyway, Larry sits Sylvia down, and he's like, yo, you should marry me. And she tells him that she doesn't love him, and she's actually secretly engaged to someone else. I do love that she is bold enough to lead with just, I don't love you, notorious underworld figure Larry. Larry. I am engaged. Larry the crime cumber. Gross. (laughs) I hated that. (laughs) Keep it. Oh, God. I'm going to say it all the time. Hashtag Larry the crime cumber. Absolutely Please send us in your fan art of Larry the crime cumber. (laughs) Please do not. And if you do send in your fan art with hashtag Larry the Crime Cumber, you should tag Mark in your tweet three times. Why? So that you'll see it three times. Is that how it works? I mean, it it is if you look at it three times. <laughs> That's a crime. And a crime would be committed by... Notorious underworld figure Larry. <laughs> the Crime Cumber. Ugh. All right. So I think that's point number two. Point number three! Like I said, there's a lot of this movie that happens between romantic stuff. And these first three points are all in quick succession. So this is where Alma reveals herself to be a primary villain of the movie. Yeah, she's no good. So Alma, who is also in love with Conrad, stages an encounter where somehow she gets Sylvia to be, like, interacting with some other dude. So that when Conrad comes to visit her, Conrad looks in the room and, like, sees Sylvia up close with this guy. And he's like, what the heck? And Alma, meanwhile, is feeding him, like, don't even ask her for an explanation. There's no point hearing an explanation from her. Alma is no good, very bad. And I didn't really get how she managed to set this up. It doesn't make sense. So, anyway, Conrad takes Alma's word and he's like you're right there is no good reason for an explanation so i won't bother to listen to one and so he bursts in and just starts choking sylvia like he's gonna strangle her to death she tries to explain and he's like no explanations from you and then alma has to come in and be like wait don't kill her i may have gone too far and then sylvia's like can i please explain what's happening here and he says no and storms out And then one of the lost sequences, according to an inner title that was added, is him leaving the city, apparently never to return, because we don't see him again. Yeah, R.I.P. Conrad. Maybe he died in Brazil. He's off in Brazil doing God knows what. He's searching for El Dorado. He's off looking for El Dorado. He's on the road. He can't find it because he doesn't have the Book of Secrets. What is on page 47? Your mom. (laughs) 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 All right. So now a good chunk of the movie happened. So in between, we started off this episode talking about fantastically rich people being weird. Sylvia is a teacher. She works at a black school that's run by Reverend Jacobs, and they're running out of money. They need $5,000 or they're going to have to shut down. So Sylvia goes to Boston to try to raise money among the charitable community of Boston. And while she's like walking through a park, Evelyn the philanthropist runs into her with her car. No, Sylvia's rescuing a little girl. Oh, that's right. Yes, <laughs> right. And the most like cliched thing Sylvia has. To, I don't know if it's a cliche in 1920 or not. Maybe it just is now. Sylvia has to push a kid out of the way. Of a car. I don't think cars had been around long enough for that to be a cliche. So she gets hit by the car. And then Evelyn is like, holy crap, what can I do to help you? And Sylvia's like, well, I need $5,000. I had this weird realization. Like, Evelyn is old enough and it's 1920. She might remember the Civil War. Oh, wow. Like, if she's 70... She was 11 when the war started. Evelyn goes to the hospital and is talking to Sylvia. And then says, when you're feeling better, come see me. And it's like, 
Lady, you hit her with your car. I think you can discuss whatever you need to discuss in the hospital or wherever Sylvia is. Well, no, it's like, you know, call on me at your convenience. Yeah, so she asked for $5,000. Sylvia then talks to a racist old Southern woman. Sylvia at first is like, I'm definitely going to do it. Just like swing back tomorrow or whatever, and I'll have the money for you. Right. But then she's like, oh, there's a Southern woman. I should ask her her opinions on the matter. She brings in Geraldine, who is so racist, she opposes the 19th Amendment because she doesn't want black women to vote. That's just, I genuinely can't imagine that leap. Where she's okay with black men voting. Well, she's not. Because there's the one, at one point, the newspaper that Senator Vardaman is going to try to pass laws to stop black men from voting. Oh, right. But the idea that black women could vote in particular is what terrifies her. Enough that she would prefer she not be able to vote. I do love that Geraldine is pretty scorned by the Boston society. Yeah. They're like, she's been in town for a week and hasn't met a single rich person. And for a moment, Geraldine convinces Evelyn, like, you should not give money to this school because Geraldine argues schools are terrible for black people and just make them unhappy. They're all just lumberjacks and laborers. They don't need education. It just makes their brains bad. And Evelyn is convinced before eventually changing her mind and saying, you know what, Sylvia, I am not going to give you $5,000. I am going to give you $50,000 in 1920. Just to piss off Geraldine, too. I don't remember how... Right. I don't remember what changes her mind on Geraldine. But she does that. And that's like $600,000, yeah, right? Yeah, it's almost $650,000, which I feel like back then would still be even more than it would be today. Right, because the purchasing power. But this is where we actually meet Ned, because Geraldine's like, no, you should give money to old Ned. And then we get a brief look at old Ned. But then Evelyn's like, hell no, here is way more money than you know what to do with and is it gonna be in gold because it's 1920 <laughs> i hope it's like gold bars i can't imagine that being able to spend that much money at a rural school in mississippi like, have you seen tenet yet no i haven't there's a scene in tenet where evil villain kenneth branagh is trying to get john david washington to do something and he's like here's your mission go do it and john david washington's like well i'm gonna need a lot of money and branagh gives him a gold bar and i'm like i would not know the first thing to do with a gold bar to get it into actual money because i think one of those like cash for gold places will not be able to help me with that i wonder if a bank could still process gold I don't know. I think what we need to do is get our hands on a gold bar and walk into the local BB&T and throw it on the <laughs> counter and demand that they give us money. I'd like to exchange this for its cash value. I can no longer carry bullion in my pockets. <laughs> just fill out a deposit slip and just hand a brick gold bar over with a deposit slip. Can you put this in my checking, please? Which is basically what Sylvia does. So Sylvia takes the money back. Reverend Jacobs is like, oh, this is great. Let's go. They are mostly living their lives, which takes us to point four. Right. Sylvia's goodness is so overwhelming that Reverend Jacobs proposes to her. He's like, look, you're good people. I'm good people. We work together. It would be very easy for us to keep doing that. So we should get married. And Sylvia thinks about Dr. Vivian, the nice man she met in Boston. And says no. And I do think that's, again, one of the interesting things this movie does is the way that it uses, like, flashback and cutting between scenes and even, like, showing us images that are clearly just what's in the character's heads. And that's the kind of thing that wasn't done a lot in this period and I think is executed pretty well. 
Yeah, I love seeing and understanding that the image is what someone is thinking because that can be hard to convey without sound. Yeah, I think it's really well done. So yeah, she says no. And then she has to run away to the north. Because Larry, the notorious underworld figure, is on the run from the police. And he threatens to expose all of the secrets of her past, which she doesn't want to deal with because she doesn't want to like live with all the horrible things that happened in her past. So he threatens to expose all of that. So she flees back to the north. And this is, I think Larry follows her up north and she sees Alma. Then Alma is feeling guilty. So she tells Dr. Vivian all of Sylvia's secrets. Right. Alma gets like a, like 30 minutes to narrate Sylvia's backstory. Right. I love that Alma's confession is Sylvia's life. It's not about the bad things she's done. And that's part of where I think the flashback is weird, that Sylvia's not really involved in it at all. Yeah. And the flashback itself isn't even really a story about Sylvia, so much as it is about how Sylvia's adopted family is murdered by a lynch mob for a crime that her adoptive father, Mr. Landry, is framed for. Framed for by another black man. Right, by Ephraim. And while her adopted parents are being lynched, Sylvia is nearly raped by the brother of the man that was killed. But then it turns out that he realizes Sylvia is his daughter. His legitimate daughter. His legitimate daughter, which is fascinating because it means he properly married a black woman, which would be illegal in a lot of states. Yeah, it's weird. Um, And he paid for her education, which is why Sylvia is so smart. Right. But I this segment is not connected to our romance but is striking, especially in comparison to something like Birth of a Nation, where in that movie, the white violence, at every turn, the movie works to justify it. So that by the end of the movie, like, the clan are the heroes riding into town. And in this movie, it really is, like, quite random. And you get the sense of, like, the mob mentality of it, which makes it scary. Because you have the real sense, like, it could spring out anywhere and target anybody. Even someone that is actively trying to be on your side. But this brings us to point five. Dr. Vivian has gotten all of her backstory and then goes to Sylvia and tells her how she's feeling and that she shouldn't feel that way. Right. Like we were saying earlier, basically making the argument, the you were never an immigrant argument, which is intended more to say like black people do belong in the United States. This is their country. They belong as part of this society. Mm -hmm. And then they get married. Yeah, I will say, when he's, like, explaining everything's good and proposes to her, she does not look that into it, but she does at least look happy in the marriage at the end of the movie. Yeah, she does seem happy, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. All right, William. After watching all of Within Our Gates, do you find the romances believable? Um, I don't know. I think the biggest problem for me, maybe, in terms of believability is Alma. Because I just don't know how she staged that. I feel like it's hard to disbelieve this movie when everything is not shown to you, but just written down so you get a handy <laughs> little follow along. But that's the thing. Like, So a lot of it is not given to us in anything except for very brief intertitles. So then the things that we do see, which are, for example, Alma being like, I staged this encounter. I look at the encounter. I just don't know how she did that from another room. I mean, Othello at least makes sense. There's a whole handkerchief planted. Right. So I'm curious, every week we rate a romance's believability from 0 to 10. Like, where would you rate Within Our Gates? I think I would give Within Our Gates a 6. Yeah, that feels right to me. Because I do believe that Sylvia and Dr. Vivian would stay together. 
Yeah, and I believe that Reverend Jacobs would propose to her. Right, especially at that time. Oh, we work together. Wouldn't it be convenient if we were married? All right, Will, do you think any of the characters are dateable? Um, Sylvia definitely is. Yes, Sylvia is just a smart, caring woman that just wants to educate the children. Everybody loves teachers. Um, maybe Some have even said they're the most dateable people. Um, <laughs> Conrad's a no. Conrad's hard no. Alma and Larry, hard no. Dr. Vivian, I feel like he was just there, said some patriotic things, and then they got married. Dr. Vivian does very little, but I'm happy for Sylvia. Yeah. All right. Do you think that Sylvia and Dr. Vivian will stay together? I mean, probably, right? I don't see a reason why they wouldn't. They seem happy enough. Yeah. Uh, If you had to pick one person in the movie to date, I'm curious who you would pick. I feel like the answer is obvious. I just think it has to be Sylvia. I mean, yeah, I loved her mom, too, her adopted mom. Oh, yeah. She was just- Mrs. Landry. She was just doing her best, keeping her family together. I was thinking about, like, well, maybe Evelyn. Like, she did hit someone with her car, but she doesn't like racist people. It's true. Evelyn is a good person. She (laughs) felt guilty enough about hitting someone with her car to give them $50,000. A cool half million at the time. Another good choice. But I don't know. It's a tough one. I think Sylvia's the answer. I'm going to lean Evelyn because I don't want to date another teacher because then we just talk about school all the time. So many of the movies we've covered on this show have been adapted into Broadway musicals. Do you think that there should be a Within Our Gates Broadway musicale? I don't know. I mean, I lean no. I lean no too. I feel like the story you would be telling in a Within Our Gates musical is not about Within Our Gates. It would be about the movie Within Our Gates. Like, to me, a more interesting musical could be made about Oscar Michaud's life because that would be more relevant, I think. I mean, there's a lot of very relevant ideas in this movie, but I don't know if I want to see a musical about the evils of lynching. Yeah, I feel like if I were going to turn this into a musical, it would focus on the Sylvia stuff, and you would probably cut out most of the Landry stuff, which I think would be neater, but would cut out some of the more interesting ideas. Right. So I think I'm leaning towards a no. Yeah, I kind of like the idea of a a musical or something about the life of Oscar Michaud, because there's so much going on there. There is. I think a musical would be a very fun way to do it, because you could do a montage of all of his jobs. Like, someone just tosses him a pitchfork or a steelworker's hammer. And then he gets to ride out to Dakota. Yeah. Start his farm. All right, I think that is about it for this movie. Next week, we will be, uh, we didn't plan this, but we'll be seeing 90s Tay Diggs again when we check out the classic wish fulfillment romance, How Stella Got Her Groove Back. A movie that was honestly painful to watch in this time period. (laughs) Oh, you didn't just hop on a plane to Jamaica? No, I did not. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help us to find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from within our gates? I mean, I think it, at some point it's just like, you got a crush on somebody you know, shoot your shot. Reverend Jacobs does it. Dr. Vivian does it. I guess Larry does it. Doesn't but really it's just like good to him. be open. Yeah, it, it only works out for Dr. Vivian. But until you do it, you'll never know. I think be so bland, but have a doctorate.
that someone will eventually marry you. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 It's all a mystery.